Welcome back to Broken Messenger. It's been a hot minute since I posted an episode. It's because I have some exciting things happening. First, I wanted to let you all know that I've upgraded my podcast publishing plan, which means that my episodes from this point on will not be deleted. They will be here until the internet crashes or until I take them down. I also have more publishing time, so I won't have to worry about posting things in certain time frames. The other exciting thing that I'm working on, which is why I haven't posted lately, is I'm going back through my podcast and turning them into written devotions for people to use from our church library. I'm super excited about the whole project. I want to give people every opportunity to get in the Word. I cannot make people get into the Word themselves, but I can give them so many different opportunities that they are only left with empty excuses. Because of this project, this episode will be a little bit of a duplicate. While I was editing the episode called What I Think or What God Thinks, I got to what I thought was the end of the lesson, but I realized I tacked on the rest of the scripture from that chapter to that episode. At the time, I tied those two lessons together, but I missed the opportunity to dig a little deeper from another perspective. So today's going to be the same scripture, different lesson. In this episode, we're going to start out looking in 2 Kings chapter 5, and I'll do a quick recap of the first half of the chapter 5. In a full disclosure, I'm going to butcher some names, but I'm going to try to be consistent in my butchery so that at least I sound like I know I'm talking about when it comes to these pronunciations. But I just wanted to give you full disclosure so you don't quote me on how to say these names. Um, So Nahum is the commander of the Aram army, and he has leprosy. He goes to Israel to be healed by a prophet and he, that he has been told about. While it doesn't go the way he thought it would, and he was a bit angry for a bit, Nahum does eventually get healed and his heart is changed. When Nahum offers to pay the prophet, the prophet refuses. And that's where we're going to pick up the scripture. 2 Kings 5, 15-19 Then Nahum and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in the whole world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Nahum urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Nahum, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimen to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Rimen, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah said. So Nahum wants to pay for the healing he received, because he's so thankful what the prophet and his God has done for him. But Elijah refuses to accept. He knows that God does not want him to dilute the healing by placing a monetary value on it. He doesn't want the commander to be able to say he bought the healing, so he refuses. And then we see the change in the heart of Nahum when he repents. We can see that Elijah sees genuineness in Nahum's heart because he tells him to go in peace. Next, we meet Giazi, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. After Nahum had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elijah, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Nahum, this Armenian, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Nahum. When Nahum saw him running toward him, he got out He got out down from his chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asks. So Gehazi, being Elijah's servant, has seen Elijah do a great many miraculous things. 
I'm sure there is little doubt in Gehazi's mind that what Elijah does and speaks is from the Lord. Yet he says that my master was too easy on Naam. By whose standards is Gehazi holding Elijah to? Certainly not God's. Gehazi is holding Elisha to what Gehazi says is good and just. Even though it is Elijah who is the man of God, the prophet, Gehazi is putting his own feelings above those truths. What I wonder, though, was was he fueled by greed or anger, or perhaps both? Now that we, not that he would be just in his anger against Nahum, but I can sympathize with him. I mean, Nahum was the commander of the very same army that subjected Gehazi's own country to raids that stole his people. I could see how he would be upset that Elijah just healed this man for absolutely no benefit to them. But that's how God works. He is quick to offer grace and mercy when he knows the condition of one's heart will be repentant towards him. Nahum, he had a heart with an ego and turned against God, a man who worshipped many gods. But God orchestrated this series of events to demonstrate the mercy and grace of God, and Nahum immediately had a change of heart. Back in 2 Kings 5.15, he says, Now I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. And he repented in verse 18. And we see the genuineness of his heart being revealed. Gehazi, though, he didn't want that mercy and grace offered to Nahum for nothing. He wanted him to pay a price for it. But the price for it is not compatible with human objects. So Gehazi responds to the question, is everything okay, starting in verse 22. And following, we see Nahum's response in 23 through 24. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say two young men from the company of prophets have just come from me from the hill country of Ephron. Please give me a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Nahum. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants, and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came back, came to the hill, the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the men away, and they left. Gehazi lies to Nahum, saying that Elijah, the man of God, sent him. He's basically saying, hey, Elijah changed his mind, and he needs these goods to give to some prophets. Nahum was so incredibly thankful for everything that had just happened, he eagerly gives Gehazi what he asks for. You say, Nahum, he valued what he had received over what he had. It says he urged Gehazi to take them, even though, he know, even though we know that Gehazi never needed any urging. He packages everything up in two bags, one for each prophet, and he sends his men to carry it back to Gehazi. Gehazi accepted, but as soon as they got to the hill, he stashes the money in the house and sends the servants on their way. He now has to hide what he has done because he knows it was wrong. So he, if he genuinely felt that Elijah had been too easy and that it was right and just for Nahum to pay, why would he need to hide what he had done? So let's regroup and take an accounting of Gehazi. He lied. He was greedy. He was angry. He knew what he was doing was wrong, and yet he did it anyways. He put his personal gain above God's plan. In verse 25, we see Gehazi go back to work as if nothing had happened. In verses 25 through 26, it says, When he went in and stood before his master, Elijah asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elijah said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from the chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds? or male and female slaves? Again, Gehazi decides that lying is the best option he has here. 
However, God apparently didn't just give Elijah intuition. He gave him a clear vision. He says, was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Just like God was orchestrating in Nahum's life, so too was he doing in Gehazi's. But in Gehazi's, he was exposing his lying, greedy, angry, unrepentant heart. And just as God brought about quick mercy and grace for Nahum, just as quick as he brought about justice, just, just as quick he brought about justice and punishment for Gehazi. In verse 27 of 2 Kings chapter 5, it says, Nahum's leprosy will cling to you and your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elijah's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. It wasn't that he lied. It wasn't that he was angry. It wasn't, that, it wasn't even that he tricked Nahum. The problem was the condition of his heart. He knew what he was doing was wrong and he didn't care or repent. And God brought forth righteous judgment. Another example from scripture of this instantaneous judgment can be found in the book of Numbers, chapter 16. Moses is still leading the people out of Egypt to the promised land, and an uprising has occurred. In Numbers 16, 1 through 11, it says, Korah, son of Izar, son of Kohath, and the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abram, sons of Eliab, and On, son of Pleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell his face down. Then he said to Korah and his followers, In the morning, the Lord will show you will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all of your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You, Le- you Levites have gone too far. Moses has also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites. Isn't it enough for you that God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work of the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and to minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all of your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Oftentimes, when they list out this family history, it's hard for me to even wrap my head around it. It kind of just glosses over. I kind of just gloss over it. But here, when he starts out in chapter sixteen, and he says Korah, son of, and then son of, and then finally son of Levi, what they are saying is that Korah was a Levite. So a distinction that I did not realize is that the Levites and the priesthood priesthood are two different things. In Exodus, Aaron and the brother of Moses and his sons were designated as priests. The Levites were those from the tribe of Levi, and they did all the priestly, du- the not priestly duties, like maintaining the temple. Korah felt this was a less than role. Korah had seen how the priests were in Egypt. They had money and political power, and he mistakenly thought that this was how Moses planned to run things, and they wanted to be more than Levites. They wanted to be priests because they wanted power, money, and prestige. Korah led this rebellion, and Moses is telling them that though you say I am wrong, you guys are the one that's banding together against God. Numbers 16, 12 through 27, it says, 
Then Moses summoned Atham and Abram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, We will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us out of, out of the land of flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you want to treat me like the men? Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I do not, I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow, you and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took their censers, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of a meeting, the glory of the God Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, O God, who breathes, who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Datham, and Ibram. Moses got up and went to Datham and Ibram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because all of their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Datham, and Abram. Datham and Abram had come out, and they were standing with their wives, children, and the little ones at the entrances to their tents. So they have been warned that they are wrong, but they do not care. They want power, money, and prestige, and they feel entitled to it. Not only does Korah desire the things he should not, and not only does he show no regards to, given, to the, being given truth, what's worse is that he's leading an assembly of others to do the same. He is telling the assembly that Korah has gathered around him to back up. He's going to fall, and if you do not distance yourself, you too will fall. The company we hold can sometimes be our downfall. But still yet, a group of about 250 men still followed Korah. Number 16, 28 through 35 says, Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have, have treated the Lord with content. Contempt. As soon as he is finished saying all of this, the ground under them, the ground under them splits apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah, together with their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead. With everything they owned, the earth closed over them, and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too! And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. They could not outrun the righteous instantaneous judgment of God. They were putting their hope and faith in Korah, and when the ground swallowed them alive, instead of repenting, they ran off in fear. Instead of dropping to their knees and acknowledging God for who he was, they ran in fear, and they too were consumed with instant judgment. 
this time in the way of fire. Still yet, seeing the family swallowed whole and then the 250 consumed with fire, verse 41 says, The next day the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. It says the very next day, not months or years later after the memory of those people being killed had faded, but the very next day after Moses says God is going to do something new, the very next day after Moses says God will open the earth and consume them and it happens, the day after he tells the people to distance themselves and they still don't repent and they are consumed with fire, the very next day, they are grumbling against Moses and Aaron as if those were the ones who were wrong. Verse 42 through 45. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned towards the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent meeting and the Lord said to Moses, get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Number 16, but you see the difference between, I'm sorry, scratch the number 16. You see the difference between Moses and Aaron's reaction to the power of God being displayed in verses, versus the 250 men left after Korah is destroyed. There's a big difference between how they react. The plague starts and Moses rushes to have Aaron, the rightly priesthood, make, make atonements for the Israelites that have been left over. He does, and the plague stop but not before 14,700 people died from the plague. This was another example of God bringing about instantaneous righteous judgment. This doesn't fit into the mold of the God that just loves the world version of love. God does love. And if he hadn't stopped Korah, how many people would Korah have taken down? Alone, he had already taken more than 250 people with him. But some are in the habit of separating Old Testament as being the way God used to work, but that he doesn't work that way now. But scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he did in the Old Testament, why wouldn't he do it in the New Testament? Oh, wait, he does. If we skip from the New Testament, starting in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, and we read... Um, and we read what the church has to say, what it says about the church. All the believers who were in one heart and mind, no one claimed, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So the church was living together as one family. They, were the, they had the same heart and mind, meaning that they were working together with the same goals and the same plans in mind. We begin chapter 15, and we meet Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira, members of the same, that same body of believers. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, 
How is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? After it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. The problem wasn't that he didn't give all the money from the sale of the land. The problem, again, was the condition of his heart. He didn't want to give up all the money, but he also didn't want the people to know that he didn't want to give up all the money. He knew the people would be upset, but he was hiding it. He was he, The knowing it was wrong, but not caring about it was wrong. Peter says, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Our heart is filled with what we put into it. This is why scripture says to hide in our heart his word. If his word fills up our heart, there's no room for Satan to fill it up. So he's not just sitting against man, but also sitting against the Holy Spirit. I think it's Elijah in 2 Samuel. He says something along the lines of, when you sin against man, you have God to intercede for you. But when you sin against God, who do you have to intercede for you? It's, it's a very scary thing to sin against God. So then, continuing in Acts 5, verses 5 through 8, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked him, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, that's the price, she said. Now, remember, back in verse 2, it said, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. So when she is asked and she says, yes, that's the price, it was a blatant lie. She knew it was wrong, yet she still hid it. She wasn't repentant. Acts 5, 9 through 11, Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at the feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Again, the problem wasn't lying. The lying was a byproduct of the condition of their heart. They knew it was wrong and so they tried to hide it, just like Gehazi back in 2 Kings. Remember, Ananias and his wife were New Testament. So this example of instant judgment still existed in the New Testament. Jesus comes in both truth and grace. We can't have a God of of just truth, and we can't have a God of just grace. It was equal parts truth and equal parts grace. But thinking about these events, I can't help but think, if God is the same in the past, present, and forever, are there instantaneous moments of judgment still, or do we just explain it away? Like if we had seen the earth open up like it did um, for the the people in with Moses' time, if we had seen that and it swallowed the people alive, would we call it a freak accident? Or wait, we call them sinkholes. If a plague came out and wiped away thousands of people, would we call it, I don't know, something like COVID? Or when people have spontaneous deaths, we call it tragic accidents. But I can't help but wonder if some, not all, But some are not instantaneous judgments of God. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that every sickness, accident, random death is the judgment of God. But are we right to call them freak accidents all the time, too? I mean, that's the one extreme or the other extreme. And we know that scripture puts us in the middle. 
And I don't have an answer to these questions. It's just thoughts that I ponder. I mean, it makes you kind of look a different way at things that happen now. Because God is the same then as he is now, as he is, will be in the future. So the same God who had instantaneous judgment then can have instantaneous judgment now. The same God who gave instantaneous grace then gives instantaneous grace now. Thank you for listening to this episode of Broken Messenger.